Our Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we are proud and we want to um, do things to be liked by other people and to be, um, to be accepted by you. Please help us um, today to understand that we cannot contribute anything. Help us to understand um, who we are um, in your sight and help us to understand what Jesus has done for us. Help us to uh, rehear um, this word to us that it's only through your generosity, your undeserved generosity, that we can come to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever uh, studied for an exam and you have been uh, working on it hard but, um, or maybe not so hard and you realise that uh, the judgement day is coming um, tomorrow and you stay up up, 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 uh, late, 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 late. And you realise you just need an extra kick to help you going until the morning hours. And so you uh, take out a can of Red Bull and you pop it into yourself and it just gives you that extra kick. In fact, it kicks you right through the exam the next day so that you uh, are actually um, successful in the exam. Anybody here ever done anything like that? Maybe not Red Bull, maybe Coke, maybe coffee. Okay. So we've got two honest people in the whole congregation. Thank you. Well, this is the way that um, people in, uh, thought about God in John Calvin's time in 16th century France. Uh, this year is the 500th anniversary of um, the Reformation when Martin Luther posted his um, 95 Theses on the door, the cathedral door, which was a protest against the Roman Catholic understanding of um, indulgences, that you could actually buy your way a ticket to heaven. Uh, and I just wanted to um, give you today a little um, look into, um, into France and to one of these reformers, John Calvin, uh, and um, during the week I will give you, uh, on Tuesday night, I will give you a look into, um, into the, the most famous Slovene reformer. His name is Primoz Trubar. But people, uh, people in John Calvin's time in 16th century France, they thought about God like spiritual red bull or coffee or coke. Um, the church preached that they were miserable sinners uh, headed for hell, just like an exam. And yet, um, people had the basic abilities needed to get prepared for the exam. They were, they were good, just lazy. And they needed a shot of God's grace, his spiritual red bull, uh, to help them do the right things. And that's, where the church ca- uh, that's what the church gave them. You go to church, you take part in the mass, you make satisfaction for your sins, and God might let them through on the judgment day. You've got a pretty good chance. So they had a place for God's grace and in saving people, but they also had a place for people. So it's people and God who get us across the line. Now, that kind of thinking is fairly common today too, isn't it? Uh, You might be thinking that way. There sure are a number of um, Slovenes who um, think this way about God and being saved. I do my bit. I go to church. 
I try to be good to my family, my neighbours. I give up some good things for Jesus. I fast uh, and God helps me. God gives me church. He, He gives me prayers. He gives me the saints to pray for me. I'm thankful to him. Uh, and together, God and I work on my salvation so I can be fairly sure that he will let me into heaven, if he's a good guy. But I'm not fully convinced. So I want to talk to you about um, this reformer and the Reformation. It pays to learn about our spiritual forefathers, doesn't it? They have been through everything that we have been through, probably worse, Okay, and they have, um, they have been through and read their Bibles. God has been gracious to them. We can learn much from them. Um, and uh, the Reformation in the 16th century was mainly a theological shift. It was a change in thinking about God and us that happened when people started reading the Bible for themselves and they realised that what they were hearing in church wasn't right. So John Calvin... This is what happened to him when he started reading the Bible. He realised that we're not saved at all by the Red Bull method. He didn't have Red Bull. Um, We can't do anything good to make satisfaction for our sins. God isn't like a can of Red Bull that gets us across the line. In fact, Calvin came to understand and teach that only by God's grace alone can we be saved. It's not us and the bit of God. It's all God through Christ. And if we keep boasting about our own efforts to make satisfaction for our sins, then we actually are in danger of missing out on salvation altogether. So it's pretty big stuff. Okay, I'm going to give you a little fast forward. There's some pictures coming up just for the visually orientated about Calvin's life. It's just a quick fast forward. Calvin was born in 1509 in Noyon. So we have the picture there. Somebody changing that. There we go. Thank you. Um, In France, he grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. At the age of 14, he moved to Paris to study Latin, then law, and then the classics, of course. Somewhere in the 1520s, he was converted from from humanism to um, to a reformer, to, to a Christian by reading Luther's works and his Bible. On 1533... On All Saints Day, this is uh, when, the 1st of November, uh, his friend, Nicholas Kopp, at the University of Paris, preached a sermon sermon that shocked his hearers. Uh, He said that Christ was the only mediator between God and man. He didn't mention any of the saints, and they wanted to kill him for it, and they wanted to kill Calvin for it too. So Calvin fled, next one. Calvin goes as uh, disguised as a farmer. There he is. Who would tell? <laughs> Calvin fled um, and he went into uh, Switzerland. He lived in Basel, but one night he uh, stopped over in a, in a town called Geneva and there was a man there called Farrell who had been uh, reforming the city. When he heard that Calvin was in town, he burst into his hotel room and he said, Calvin, you need to stay in Geneva and in this um, reformation, or God will strike you down. Calvin was a fairly retiring man, uh, just wanted to study in his library, but um, he felt convicted and he stayed in Geneva. Basically, he had an on-off relationship with Geneva for um, the rest of his life. 
Um, and he fought constantly in Geneva with the city council. People disliked him. They called him the Frenchman. They named their dogs after him. Uh, after two years, they sent him um, away, Farrell and he. They sent him to Strasbourg, exiled out of Geneva for three years. And they were probably the best years of Calvin's life. He got married. Um, and, but after three years, the council called him back to Geneva um, and Calvin didn't want to go. But this time, another friend, Martin Bootser, another reformer, said to him, uh, if you don't go, you'll be like Jonah running away from God. <laughs> so Calvin went back to Geneva. And the first sermon that he preached in Geneva was um, he picked up from the very um, verse that he, uh, that he left off on um, three years beforehand. And this was typical Calvin, okay? He wanted people to know that their persecution hadn't put him off the main game. He would be preaching the gospel no matter what, systematically and so on. Absolutely prolific writer. He wrote The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which John O and I had to read through. It took us four years of college to read through it, but it's, uh, it's a great read. So uh, you can get it. Go and get it um, today and read it. Um, he wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. He preached four times a week. This is nothing. Um, and we have many of his sermons. He wrote tracts and treatises on theological subjects. Later on in life, he basically, uh, Geneva became a training school, a theological training school for exiled Protestants from around the world. They were kicked out of their country. They came to Geneva. Calvin taught them more doctrine about God and then sent them out back to their countries all over the place um, to preach the gospel. So in 1564, he died. He was buried in an unmarked grave, which is what he wanted. His life was marked by the desire to glorify God alone for salvation and not man. And that's what we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> the Bible reformed Calvin, uh, and it's the Bible that will reform us. So that's where we're going to um, spend the rest of our time today. And the first thing that, um, that Paul says in Ephesians uh, is that you and I are dead. It's the first thing he says, Ephesians Chapter 2 and verse 1, we are dead to God. There is no room here for mixed grace, is what um, Calvin, how Calvin put it. Spiritual bull and God and us. There's no room. It's an unmixed grace. Dead men don't contribute anything. I don't know whether you've noticed that. Uh, you can't credit a dead man with helping you get into heaven. Dead people don't deserve anything. Because they can't do anything. Uh, let's just read that again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Granted, we dead people are a little strange here. We're, uh, we're committing, while we're dead, we're committing sins and transgressions. We're following the world. We're enslaved to the devil and doing his will. We are slaves to the passions and the thinking, the mind is included, of the sinful nature. That is, we are disobeying God and doing what we want to do instead. 
In short, we are the walking dead. But we're dead all the same because of our transgressions and sins. We're even called the objects of God's wrath here when we live outside of Christ and we follow our own human nature. So that is, we are dead men and women uh, waiting to be executed by God himself. We haven't yet been executed, but we are as good as dead to God now. Have you uh, watched that film, The Godfather? Anyone? No. Okay, nobody's admitting to anything today. Okay, okay. Same, same guys. Okay. The Godfather, okay, is about a, a family, very interesting family, um, a mafia. I'm not recommending that you watch it, by the way, if you haven't. Okay. It's a mafia family living in uh, America just after the Second World, World War. And uh, Michael Corleone inherits the family business. And uh, he is at one point betrayed by his older brother, Freddo. And after investigating the matter with Freddo, Michael Corleone, Corleone says this, Freddo, you are nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. I don't want to see you at the hotels. I don't want you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. Now, that's what it's like, in a sense, between God and us as we follow the desires of our sinful nature. We are dead to God. Is that how you see yourself today? Do you think that your human nature is hopelessly enslaved to sins and transgressions? It's hard to see ourselves this way, isn't it? Are you justly facing the wrath of God for your rebellion? Do you accept that there are only two types of people in this room today? There are those who are dead to God and there are those who were dead to God. That's not what the Roman Catholic Church taught John Calvin as he grew up. Sure, they taught him that he was a sinner and he needed God's grace, but they also taught him that he needed to make satisfaction for his sins by doing good things. In other words, not grace alone, but grace, Red Bull, and good works, our efforts. And those good works come from us. And when Calvin trusted in Christ, God changed his thinking on human nature. He discovered what the Bible had always said, that nothing good comes from our sinful nature. We are dead to God and we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. Now, I've got a quote um, here, but I don't think that it's... Can we go to the next one? No, we can't. We can. Oh, there it is. There it is. Okay. Uh, This is what Calvin says. If on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith, which strips us of all commendation, it follows that salvation does not come from us. Ought we not then to be silent about free will, good intentions, fancied preparations, merits and satisfactions? There is none of these which does not claim a share of praise in the salvation of men. So that the praise of grace would not, as Paul shows here, remain undiminished. Now, this mistake of thinking that human beings are by nature good or partly good is not something that only people in Calvin's day believed. It is very real today in people's thinking. I am uh, meeting with a, a young student 
um, at the moment in Slovenia, and he is insistent that he has free will, that his salvation is a mixed grace, part reward for his free will, partly God's gift of revelation to help him get there. And I'm trying to argue, trying to encourage him to read Romans 1 to 4 with me to see that his will is in bondage. It's not a free will. Um, and to see that, um, that salvation comes from God's generosity alone. Now, why does, why does this matter? Why, why is it important that it's grace alone or not? It's a good question. It matters because if you think that your salvation is wholly or partly dependent on your good works, you can never be sure that God completely forgives and loves you. Now, this is what a, um, a former Catholic um, intellectual who's become a Christian, his name is Vinko Oschlak, uh, and uh, this is what he says about um, the problem for people who think that their own efforts contribute. Isto problem katolčana je da ne ve kam odide po smrti. Antega ne. On ima neko upanje, neko bledo upanje, upam da se na boku smilu, no to je to je njegov odgovor. Ne? Uh, on ne more reč vem kam gre, tega on ne more reč. Ker ne pozna pismo. Ja, če pozna pismo bi vedel kam gre. Okay, thanks. So, did you get the gist of that? Okay, the Bible says he doesn't know where he's going. Because he doesn't know the scriptures, says Vinko, if he knew the scriptures, he would know where he's going for certain. The Bible even goes further than, uh, than just talking about our, our assurance. If you are relying on your own performance to get right with God, the Bible says you will miss out on the grace of God. So where are you this morning? Are you still dead to God because you're relying on your own performance to make yourself right with him? Or have you abandoned your confidence in yourself and have you turned your attention to God's resurrection power in Christ? Because that's where your assurance of salvation lies, in Christ alone and in God alone. And that's where Paul goes in the rest of our passage today. He says, salvation is by God's grace alone to the glory of God's grace alone. He says, God is so powerful and merciful or gracious that he makes people alive while they are dead. God resurrects people from the dead, not because people are good, but only because God is merciful. All of salvation comes from God, from his grace alone, and none of it comes from us. So let's just read that again, verse 4. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So who saves us? 
Not a rhetorical question. Who saves us? God. Is it God alone? Right. God alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God's grace alone. And Paul can't emphasise that enough here. Okay? It is wholly and completely a work of God. Now, did you notice how many times Paul uses the phrase here, and I just want to concentrate on this um, for the end, how many uh, times he uses the phrase in Christ Jesus or with Christ Jesus here? Now, if you want a lolly, you can tell me quickly, and I'll get you a lolly later on. I don't. <laughs> how many times does he say in Christ Jesus or with Christ Jesus? It's a fair few, isn't it? Any guesses? Close, no cigar, no lolly? Okay. Six. Six times in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus. Okay? Verse five, made us alive with Christ. God raised us up, verse six, with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Uh, Verse seven, expressed to us in his kindness, in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, again, granted union with Christ, is what we're talking about here, being uh, raised with him or being in Christ Jesus are fairly weird concepts for us to understand. We don't often talk about being in someone. In Kingsley, I'm in Kingsley. Uh, We don't often talk about that. Think about it for a bit. God is saying if you are united to Christ through faith right now, even though you sit in your fairly average body, which is headed and decaying and headed for death, I don't mean to be offensive, okay? My body is in the same situation as yours, okay? Fairly average and decaying. Through faith, even though you are sitting here, you are actually raised from the dead already and sitting at God's right hand, ruling the universe with Christ. That's how God sees you. That's how God treats you through faith. He treats you just like he treats his son, Jesus. Okay, Jesus is our representative. All of our hopes are with him. They are riding on him. It's like being a refugee. You probably heard, I imagine, we had a, a number of refugees from Iran uh, and Iraq coming through Slovenia. None of them wanted to stay in Slovenia. They wanted to go to Germany, the promised land. But we had them coming through Slovenia for a time. There still, uh, still are some there. And uh, we heard so many news reports at that time. Uh, we heard uh, about um, the, that the majority of the refugees were young men. Now, why is that? That's because they are representatives of their families. Okay? The grandparents, the children back in Syria, they thought, we can never survive this, ger- this journey. Thousands of kilometres to Germany. Grandparents will die. Children will die on the way. So what do we do? We send our strongest representative, our young men. While we stay and survive in this homeland, we send our representative to Germany and all of our hopes go with him, that he makes it to Germany, that he finds a job, that he gets citizenship, and then he sends for us and then we can go and live with him. Well, it's like that with Jesus. He goes before us. All of our hopes are on his shoulders He died our death for us, my death 
your death for us. And God raised him to life, demonstrating his acceptance of Christ's death for us. And God seated Christ in the heavens where he now rules uh, on God's throne. And Christ has been given all authority to declare our forgiveness and our citizenship in God's heaven with, with God. So by faith, being in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus, united to him, God promises, he declares, that we too share in all of Christ's benefits. Now, in promise, like the families who still wait in Iran, soon in full reality when Jesus returns and takes us with him to the new heavens and the new earth. We didn't deserve anything for that citizenship, those benefits. Christ did it all for us. But because we are with him, in him, by faith, we enjoy all of the benefits that he has won for us. I love watching those big um, sports stars like um, Ronaldo uh, in soccer or whatever, state of origin. Who's, who, who's the big sports star in the state of origin? Who? Thurston. There you go. I remember him. Okay, Thurston. So they travel around, spend their whole lives training hard. Uh, Ronaldo wins the European Championships. Lots of preparation, lots of travel, hard-won soccer games. They get there. It's time for the glory, soaking up in their hard-won success. And what do they do? They take up their little kids, their own kids, into their arms... And they do the lap of honour with their kids, right? Now, it's, that, that kid has done absolutely nothing to deserve this success. His father has done it all, okay? And yet because he is related to Ronaldo, he basks in the glory of that, that success. And those children are like Christian people who bask in our Saviour's success. It's all him. He did all the work for us. But being, uh, being through, uh, united to him by faith, we share in his glory and triumph. But I want you to imagine just for a second what it's like when we don't give Christ alone all the glory that he deserves for saving us. When we keep some of that boasting for ourselves. Yes, Jesus did half of the work, but we have to do the rest. Or Jesus, which I hear um, quite often, Jesus helps those who help themselves. Uh, We rob Christ of all of his glory that he deserves and we take the praise wrongfully. And yet every person who does, who tries to earn God's favour through good works is doing that. And what do we deserve when we rob Christ of his glory? It's ungratefulness. It's pride. And God says in Galatians that those who try to rely on their own goodness that they are alienated from Christ, that they have fallen away from grace. Now, you don't want that for yourself. And I don't want that for the Slovene people. So what's the right way to enjoy all of Christ's benefits? Well, salvation is by God alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. Now, faith isn't a work. Faith is the opposite of works. You do a work, you deserve a reward. Faith is trust. It's the recognition that you didn't do anything for it, but you're trusting the work of somebody else. You're taking their free gift. You're not paying for it. 
So the right way to receive God's grace, God's generosity through Christ, is to abandon your own works, admit that you do not come up to scratch, and take Christ and his work on the cross for you by faith. Now, um, what's the purpose of all of this? Okay? What's the purpose of it? Well, we read it here, okay? Why, why does God do all of this and we can't do anything? Okay, the purpose is verse 5, I know, verse, uh, verse 7, right? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, okay? Okay, God, the purpose of all of this is that God gets all of the praise, for everything that he has done. Now, John Calvin understood this. Uh, if we go to the next part, next one. Um, okay. Uh, John Calvin understood this, what the chief end of man is. He wrote this in the Genevan Catechism of 1541. What is the principal end of human life, says the teacher. The student says, it is to know God. Teacher, who do you, why do you say that? The student because he has created us and put us on earth to be glorified in us. And it is surely right that we dedicate our lives to his glory since he is the beginning of it. Okay? God has made us and created us. In Ephesians chapter 2, when we are saved by his grace, we are recreated. He has created us again in Christ. And our creator deserves all of the glory. Do we understand this? Do we understand and live out the chief end of our lives? Are you praising God alone this morning for his incomparable grace to you in Christ Jesus? Or are you nullifying that truth? Uh, robbing Christ of his glory and yourself of the assurance of forgiveness through him by trying to please God with your supposed good, upright life. Where do you stand this morning? On your own two feet, outside of Christ and dead to God? This is what Calvin says about all people who remain outside of Christ. Um, next one, we must understand. No, back there, yep. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and is of no value to us. And yet God is calling you to abandon your trust in yourself today completely and take up his gift to you in Christ Jesus. That's the decision that every person must make. If you are a Christian here today, that is a decision that living by faith that you make daily. It's your daily decision as well. Calvin says this, uh, that it is the main hinge on which religion or relationship with God turns. He says, for unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you neither have a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. Okay? So if you don't understand this, salvation by grace alone, also you won't... Live properly. Your good works will not come out of this in the right way, is what he's saying. So if you think that God accepts you because of what you do, how you behave, 
You will never be at peace with him and you will or you should be worried about the coming judgment day. And you won't have the right motives for living for God as well. But if you accept by faith alone that God alone through Christ alone saves you from beginning to end, then you can already live with confidence that God forgives you completely so that the coming judgment day holds no fear for you. And you can live now with a new purpose of doing the good works, which Paul says, which God has created you to do, without taking the credit for those good works. Because you know that they're not your good works. They're God's. So you want to put your trust in God alone today? Then let's do it by praying a simple prayer. It's up on the screen. Even if you've been Christian for a long time, you can pray this with great confidence as well. So let's pray. Dear God, I realise that I'm dead to you because of my rebellion against you. Forgive me, not because I'm good, but because Jesus died for my sins and rose again for my life. I trust you. Forgive me and change me so that I live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.